Cream hot cross buns are one of those breaded items that you don't need to add anything to. They're just good bread. Can I shock you? I have I like untoasted. Untoasted? What? With but yeah, no, no, no. It, yeah, fair enough. But they were really designed designed to be toasted, though. Really. Once are again, the hot part of the hot cream. there you go. Wow. Once again, the man who picks holes in everybody else's yeah slight food. Mm. The faux pas, as he would judge them, I was is... We had other people this weekend, and they all had it dry, non-toasted, all hot cross buns, because when they're soft, that's the beauty of the enriched dough. So it's just cross buns? Yeah. Really Anybody fancy some crossed buns? Does, um, do the producers at Radio 2 like you speaking with your microphone on the table pointing in the wrong direction? <laughs> what does Zoe say about That's that? A, some hot attitude coming in from Stephen G. Unlike the cross buns. <laughs> Ah. See what we did there. What's what's wrong? Listen, the bread is good because it's bread. Mm-hmm. So if you have sweeter, better bread, then clearly that is an improvement. You toast it; mm-hmm. it is no longer bread. I like bread. Can I shock you? If you don't want your want cross there. buns toasted, just get a brioche. Brioche? No, that's completely different. That's made that's of complete sweet bread. No, it's but it's made of completely different. That has butter in it. Brioche has butter within. And you've put butter on these hot cross buns. Well, no, I don't have butter. I've just illustrated that yeah. very clearly. That you I don't, don't even have butter on no. them. No, just just dry. Just go bang straight in the mouth. That's out the package into the mouth. And me not liking take out the middle man. Is the weird what thing. What? Because to- I will have them untoasted, but you have to have butter on them. No. That's just enough sweetness. There's enough sweetness. It's like me, all over chinch. There's enough sweetness. That is just... Uh, you are an oddball, but you've just got taken it to another level there. Why am I an oddball when I've just canvassed... Uh, like I said, I canvassed four people over the weekend and they were all happy with that choice. Canvassed Indeed. four people? Well, there's, there's three people around this table, so 33% think it's a good idea. 100% of the people thought it was a good idea over mm. the weekend, so I'm thinking... How many of those weight people of numbers, were Kumars? Uh, well, there were two, two born Kumars and one married into Kumar. It just feels as though you've asked a family and it turns out that the family all eat the, their food in the same way. That doesn't feel like a great cross-section of society. Mm. I mean, I don't think Mori are going to be coming to you for their polling any time soon. I just asked my in-laws what they think. <laughs> oh, God, this is just great stuff. This is just, this is just good podcasting. <laughs> this is Set Piece Many, the podcast where four friends talk football over food. I'm Hugh Ferris. Joining me are Stephen Wyeth, expected to remain in Manchester, and Andy Hinchcliffe, about to abscond to the Algarve, but not Rory Smith, as he's not yet back from the Bosphorus. I've been working on my alliteration mm, this excellent. morning. The food is, as you may well have gathered, hot cross buns, or cross buns, if you don't like them hot. Or is it because the cross is applied when it's hot? I like buns, is what I'm saying. Well, the, the, the cross is for our Lord Jesus Christ, isn't it? So there's a religious element to the, the bun. So should would, would the Lord like his buns toasted or untoasted? That is the big question. Well, it's, been, it's been troubling mankind for millennia. According to uh, Stephen, if the Lord is part of a wider family who all agree that it should be toasted or not toasted, that is not something that we can take on as any sort of evidence. Well, the Lord has the widest family in history, <laughs> I, I, would, I would guess. Yeah, the Lord's family extends beyond Jesus, Mary and Joseph. Mm. You wouldn't just ask them what they thought. And it's not just, by the way, I should say, it's not just any hot cross bun, as Stephen and Chinch have, can both testify. Mm. They are Waitrose, apple and cinnamon hot cross buns. And do we all agree that even if you don't necessarily have to add butter to any sort of hot cross bun, or even indeed made it hot, if you add Bramley, apple and cinnamon, it improves it. In, in particular, cinnamon. I, I, am, I am a big fan. I remain a big fan of anything that has salted caramel in it is improved. Anything with cinnamon in it or on it is undoubtedly improved. I think it's the toasting process, though, that really brings out the flavours. Mm. So that's the food. Chinch, do you know what we're talking about today? Yep. What is it again? Just remind me. Well, Chinch, we're going to have a chat about preparation and mindset, things at which Andy Hinchcliffe excelled, apart from before this podcast, but where others have definitely failed. But why? And what can be the factors that are to the detriment to a football team's preparedness for a big game? This will not just be a divertimento on Jose Mourinho complaining about injuries, by the way, but that, Chinch, is what we're talking about. 
I'm fascinated. Tell me more. Already. We will do in just a moment. After this, get in touch with Set Piece Menu at setpiecemenu at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter and Facebook as well. Todd Reed has got in touch. Hi, hi, Todd. Welcome to the pod. I start with the general praise of the pod. It's excellent. And he leaves it there. I believe that American television executives, our podcast listeners, have decided and have decided that you are all trendsetters. This is the breaking news Todd has from the States. But he says this is not necessarily a reference to Chinch and NBC. After the last set of Champions League games concluded over here in the States and the TNT-B-R broadcasters, that's catchy, were wrapping up, the network followed the pod's script and ran straight into a Jack Reacher movie. Clearly American television executives are following your lead and have decided that football is best paired with the excellent dialogue and character development of Lee Child. If you have any other broadcast programming ideas, you should start talking about it on the pod, perhaps with then dramatic script readings included. That's from Todd Reed. Football and Reacher are obvious bedfellows, are they not? Well, if football is some um, impressionable and talented woman that they meet along the way, yeah. then they will indeed be bedfellows. Well, if the roller coaster of a Champions League match needs something to follow on from, a slightly less intense experience, but one that just keeps the heart ticking along at, at a suitable rate, then surely a Reacher movie would be the perfect accompaniment. And also Zinedine Zidane, the headbutt on Matarazzi. Where did that influence come from? I wonder. Instead, we have some uh, excellent out-of-context Reacher passages waiting in the wings, and in a twist to this... Some of you are getting in touch asking Chinch to read out excerpts from other literary works. A picture of Dorian Gray? Hopefully, so do keep them coming to setpiecemenu at gmail.com. Chinch, you're away next week, but we'll get to them thereafter. This is a naked attempt to tease you into further listening. Do you want me to do some readings from the Lisbon Poets? Because there's some lovely stuff in there. There really is. Chinch, why would I ever turn down that amazing offer? Let, let's do it. Let's okay. do it. That's to come. There are many more uh, examples as well. Um, I have two in particular that uh, we will definitely have on a future pod. I cannot wait. Mm -hmm. Chinch will be excellent. Mm -hmm. uh, thank you, by the way, for all your tweets and emails suggesting players for our likeable footballers 11. This is from David Jewett. Dear set-piece menu legends, strong start. I've been listening to the podcast since about episode 60, and yours is the only one where I have listened back to all of the originals and made sure to never miss an episode since, including, on one occasion, seeking out and connecting to some particularly suspect Wi-Fi in a Cypriot bar so as to not miss the latest episode. While other pods have come and gone during my audio butterflying about, you have always kept me entertained and encouraged me to think of things that I would not have thought about the sport we all love. Keep up the good work. You thought he was just going to leave it at Legends? Mm. There's a whole paragraph of ego massaging. Mm. In the most recent pod, 166, you were struggling to come up with some particularly likeable defenders, so I have endeavoured to come up with some thoughts. And his main one is Lucio. As a Bayer Leverkusen fan, says David, it was painful to see him leave when Bayern paid his ridiculously low release clause, but his performances for them, later Inter and the Brazil national side, always made him likeable to me, no matter how hard I tried not to be sucked in. It's hard not to love a centre-back who thinks he's a striker. Like it, yeah. Good one. But all Brazilian centre-halves want to be strikers, don't they? Or play like they're strikers. David Luiz, for example. <laughs> you can't... Are there many... Dis, can't, is there any... Brazilian footballers generally, people admire them, like them. Do they? Are they, are they, are they, any, are they any horrible? <laughs> apart from Neymar. Apart, if well, we say that, we'll get the kind of abuse that Rory has. He's misunderstood. If he was around this table, we'd tease the best out of him. And he'll be... There's a really good guy in there. There is a really good guy in there. But Brazilian footballers across the board are generally... Good chaps, would we say? Another suggestion from David is Cafu, along the same but lines. Is he Brazilian? He is Brazilian. There you go. Proving your point, and, not David's. And also, he could overlap with a smile on his face. I tended to grimace. <laughs> he tended to enjoy running 60-yard sprints continually during a match. What's that all about? Stop smiling, man. Uh, and the third suggestion for a defender from David is Leighton Baines. Um, and he signs off with, thanks again for your company, which brightens my week, David Jewett. A lot for Baines, actually. Likeable Everton left-backs are a rare breed, so well done, Leighton, yeah, for getting consideration. We've had quite a few mentions for Seamus Coleman as well. And I think a particularly good one, another a former Everton defender, Phil Jagielka. Yeah. Um, uh, another David has got in touch on Twitter, at DSVDG, which is quite hard to say, um, even harder to read. Not sure how he's viewed in England, but in Holland, Jorginho Wijnaldum seems to be universally liked. Played for two of the three rival top teams, Feyenoord and PSV, who both still see him as one of their own. Fans of the other rival, Ajax, also generally seem to respect him. 
there's a uh, a vote for Genie. Uh, and Dunstan Kessler is also on Twitter. Gareth Barry, surely, he says. He can fill in at either left-back or centre-back, given the defensive shortages in our team. Can't think of many players who former clubs all think fondly of him, tends to leave a place with the fans thinking more highly of him than when he arrived. And Gareth Barry is also one of the many suggested by Buffalo Joe Highland. He also mentions Francesco Totti and Olivier Giroud. Duncan Elder also nominated Giroud on Twitter. What do we think of those suggestions? Yeah, Gareth Barry is a good shout. Versatility could be important for our team. In fact, versatility for any of our select 11s would, would be a, a high category, high value category. never fill the teams, that's why. The thing is, when, when this squad goes out for, say, a team bonding evening at the local Nando's, everyone's so nice that they'll all rush to the bar to get the first round in. That could cause a problem. The team is too nice. Is that a problem out on the... We can't, we can't put a team of really nice people out on the pitch, can we? Because it wouldn't function. You need a Pat Vanden Howe in there. You need a Hinchcliffe in there. You need a bit of nastiness in your team. As, as fans of Everton in the mid-90s will know, you can't get both Pat Vanden Howe and, and a Hinchcliffe in the same They team. tried and they simply couldn't do it. Uh, Gareth Barry, the, the only £50 note that I remember ever owning was handed to me by Gareth Barry. Owning? Yes, I, I couldn't pay for anything with it. I don't look like a footballer and I'm not a drug dealer, so it can't be... Gareth Barry gave you £50? He gave me an, a £50 note. What did you give him? Uh, my wit and charm. This sounds like a... This is the kernel of a soccer story, Hugh. I think I might have given you the beginning, middle and end oh, of right, it all. Shall we open this to the, to the, the listeners? What did <laughs> Gareth Barry pay Hugh Ferris £50 for in... One, one single note. And oh, it would have been 2008, 9, 10, that sort of time. Okay, okay. About 10 years ago. So he, he paid you for something? Indirectly, yes. Oh, how, hold on a minute. What do you mean indirectly? So what do we think about Francesco Totti? <laughs> if, if Rory was here, obviously, he'd immediately say Francesco Totti because he's yeah. his best mate. But lots of suggestions for Olivier Giroud, who, as we record this, had a very good weekend. The problem with Totti is however likeable he is to the masses and Roma fans in particular, there is one set of supporters who will never come on side with Francesco Totti. And that has sort of been one of the main criteria for this discussion. Your, the fans of the rival club have got to begrudgingly admire and like you. And I don't think Lazio fans will ever come around to that way of thinking. Remember, we were fairly settled on Ben Foster for the goalkeeper. Well, the Wolves fan, Brian, on Twitter, does not like Ben Foster. Um, and a lot, including Andrew Davis, have suggested Petr Cech in his place. Hold on. They don't like Ben Foster. Why? There's something to do with... Because well, it was two Wolves fans who both said that they don't like Ben Foster. Apparently, he's done some time-wasting at Molyneux, and that seems to be enough. So, Ben Foster may not be in our team. Petr Cech might be. What about Brad Friedel? You used to share a Starbucks with Brad Friedel regularly in Wilmslow, uh, Chinch. Yeah. <laughs> I, I like I like Friedel. Do you like him as much as Petr Cech? Ooh, that is a tough one, Steve, isn't it? That is a Cech or Friedel. I feel it, whoever I choose, I'm letting the other one down, and I like them both. Okay. Uh, um, Friedel. Friedel, okay. Yeah. Well, uh, Friedel was part of a whole team from Neil Marley on Twitter. Colo Torre and Matt Hummels were his good centre-backs suggestions. I would suggest that they are both a good idea. And up front, he said Gianfranco Zola, which I'm surprised that we yes. didn't think of. When we were going through, perhaps we didn't go back that far. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Zola would stand a very good chance of, of getting in. We, we were okay, though, for sort of diminutive attacking players, weren't we? So there's a lot of competition for Zola, even if he does play a little bit further forward than the I don't the think Spanish there's a height team. requirement for this team, was there? <laughs> no, in fact, there might have been a height requirement and they have to be under five foot eight. But there was, there was a bit of a theory banging around on our Twitter thread that we were more inclined to like and admire shorter players because we'd be less threatened by them. Uh, yes, that, a, a point of view put forward by Radio 5 Live, Steve Crossman, who gets another plug. Um, the odd tactical foul has cast some doubt on David Silver's inclusion. And also, Adam Bremner writes this. Fellas, love your work. Listening to episode 166 on a flight home to New York City from Nashville. And nearly choked on my small bag of pretzels, as Andrea Pirlo was mentioned as captain of the likeable Football Eleven. Clearly, you are ignoring his three-year stint with New York City FC in MLS. Maybe it was having to play on a baseball field, but after a rapturous welcome for his first game by his last season, we were all moaning and groaning about his one goal in 60 appearances on an $8 million annual salary. Not missed by us at all, says Adam Bremner. I'm not sure goals were Pirlo's thing, were they? Goals? He didn't guarantee you goals, Pearl. He had excellent hair, though, didn't he? 
Yeah, it guaranteed you excellent hair mm. and <laughs> being incredibly handsome. We need to do a hair 11. He can be in that one as well. Oh, and finally on this, uh, Tom Reuterman has come up with a team name. No one hates us. We don't care. So it's our no one hates us, we don't care, 11. Thank you for all your considerations. We will think about them and maybe come back to it later when we've got enough time to create a spreadsheet. There were far too many emails and tweets to pay tribute to them all individually, but thank you for each and every one. We do enjoy it when you take something and run with it to coin a phrase. Next, let's dip into the file marked recently discussed subjects and pull out an email titled Captaincy. It comes from Simon Bodsworth, whose contributions we always enjoy on Setpiece Menu. Hello, SPM. The pod continues to delight week in, week out. I've just finished listening to 165 about cups, but some of the conversation around media coverage tugged at my memory banks and made me go back to 163, captaincy, for another listen. He listened twice. Good for the metrics, Simon. If you'd like to do that anybody else, we would appreciate it. The conversation centred, says Simon, around leadership and those in the captain's role, but I'd like to throw another viewpoint into the mix. I believe leaders and captains are fundamentally different roles. Whilst they may sometimes be fulfilled by the same person, I'm not sure it remains a prerequisite. Team leaders inspire performance in others by both their own actions and by instilling passion and belief in those around them. Leaders stand out from those around them and it will be leaders who are talking at half-time or on the pitch. They may also be leaders of smaller units such as the defence or midfield. There may be two or three in a team who drive performance and morale in their own ways. Captains, on the other hand, seem to be required to fulfil an increasingly different role, that of brand champion and the face of the team. More and more their role is to be the player's voice in media sessions, sitting alongside the manager or the poor individual who has to endure the in-depth analysis interview before some big event. After a particularly poor result, it is often the captain who faces the media on behalf of the players to ensure continuity of message or to deliver the positive spin. After a big win, it's more likely to be the individuals who sparkled or scored the goals. When captains' personal issues flare up in the press, captaincy is quickly and decisively removed, not because of the effect on their captaincy, but because of the possible tarnish to the brand. Captains are chosen, leaders lead. Leaders always drive performance, captains do not always lead. Keep up the great work from Simon Bodsworth. I just wondered, maybe 20, 30 years ago, captains were the leaders, but... Yeah, I think there is a point there that maybe the modern captain is that they think a lot more than, than say this is this is someone who will lead the players, will lead by example. It is more, is it someone that, re that reflects the kind of philosophy of the coach or the club and the fans' respect? So is a captain maybe put forward on, on those grounds rather than saying it's someone who's good for the players? Is, is a captain mainly a reflection of the club these days, you would say? Yes, it's very probably a political decision, yeah. isn't it? That the face most certainly needs to fit. But as we said during that podcast, the most successful teams usually have multiple candidates for the captaincy. The captain's armband would not look out of place on probably half a dozen players. Yeah, because I remember at Sheffield Wednesday, you probably got Des Walker, who was he was he was a leader in many ways in terms of his performance. You kind of wanted to follow the way that he played and the way that he conducts, apart from Monday to Friday, the way he conducts himself was terrible. <laughs> but on a match day, magnificent. But Peter Atherton, who was, again, well-respected by everybody, someone maybe the fans could um, understand as well, kind of was a reflection of kind of the, the working-class roots and what Sheffield Wednesday stood for as well. But he, So he could really encapsulate everything, Peter, in terms of having the respect in the dressing room and also the fans would appreciate why. It's not necessarily your biggest, we said this before, it's not always your biggest name. Des Walker was our, probably our biggest name player or Paolo Di Canio, but they never captained the team. But they didn't complain about it because they, they led in their own way within the dressing room. They didn't want to do interviews. They didn't want to be the, the centre of attention, photo shoots and everything else. They just wanted to get on with, with playing and leading by example in that way. Uh, and finally, some managers most likely to questions where the answer is not Sean Dyche. Here's a couple from Aidan Roberts. Thank you, Aidan. Dear Rory, Rod, Jane and Freddie. <laughs> some possible non-Dyshean candidates for the category of manager most likely to. A. Manager most likely to appear in television news footage following a major security incident with a pixelated face. Nigel Pearson. <laughs> and B, manager most likely to provide a his and hers massage service for like-minded couples, Daniel Farker. Oh, what? All the best from Aidan. Uh, any of those or anything else to setpiecemenu at gmail.com. I've got a game at Norwich coming up very soon and that's, I didn't want to hear that. That's I'm going to look at Daniel, great. my friend Daniel, in a very different light now. You just need to meet Mrs. Farker and you'll be on, on the road to some sort of... Uh, Yes, communal massaging. So Chinch is heading off to Portugal for 10 days later this week. And what does that tell you? 
It must be the business end of the season. And he, like on several occasions during his career, is going missing at the crucial time. No, it's the fact that the FA Cup's on and Sky don't cover the FA Cup, so I can bugger off for 10 days. Yes, you're right. It's actually doing, doing prep and everything. It's, yeah, yes, clearly, actually, yes. actually yeah. because of that. Or indeed because he's taking a short break to allow himself to tackle the rest of his campaign with a physical and mental freshness that'll guarantee some top-level punditry for the next three months. This is his preparation. Mm-hmm. But if you are a football team ready to crank it up for a trophy push, how do you make sure that you have the right mindset heading into those big games? How much are you affected by emotions and expectations? And how important is the manager's role in this, either with what he says to the team or indeed to the press? How does preparation change? How crucial is the right mindset as you head into the hardest part of the season? Well, physically, players at this this point in the season, if we get to kind of February, March, April time, physically... There's not a lot more you can really do with players to get them any fitter or sharper than they're going to be. So it is the is the mental side of it. It's actually going into these crunch games. Are you going to be relegated? Are you going to win the domestic cups or, or win the league, win promotion? It is all about mindset. And that's been something that clubs have been very conscious of for a long time now. And it is becoming more and more. It has to be because it's, it's the mind and the body. And if the body, again, is tuned with the science, um, you, you simply can't get any fitter or stronger and faster. You just basically maintain that during the course of the season. As you come into the home straight, it is basically about are you mentally strong enough to cope? Because the, the pressure does change. The pressure changes enormously from from August till to, to March. The demands are, are huge. So the players have to... I think it is about the players appreciating that themselves as well. The coach can play his part. They'll have all these psychologists working with the players as well. But ultimately, it is about whether the players, when they go out on the pitch, are individually and collectively able to do the job that needs doing together. Hugh forgot to mention whose idea this was, so uh, we'll just have to run with it as we let that linger. Was it, uh, was it someone's idea who's sitting around this table, Hugh? Who probably feels we need to... I think you'll find it was the hot cross buns idea. Oh, was it? I see. The buttered hot cross bun mm. had the idea because, frankly, they are showing less attitude than one member of our team today. Yes, his, his body language is awful at the moment, <laughs> isn't it? But what was in, what, the inspiration behind the idea was that... The, oh, the, so you claim to know I, the hot cross bun's thinking now, do you? No, no. I am channeling, channeling how the hot cross bun might have conjured up this moment of genius. We're hearing a lot of excuses for lots of different reasons. Mm. Or we can interpret excuses from actions how does that reflect upon the players what 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 are players thinking at the training ground or in the dressing room as they hear their managers seemingly make excuses on their behalf excuses for well let's use so we conjure jose up for the first time let's channel jose who is currently at the time of recording having to deal with the worst injury crisis in modern football I don't think any manager has ever had to deal with the loss of, what, one or two critical players at the same time. And obviously, managers are very, very quick to tell us about what they, what they would do with extra time on the training ground if there wasn't fixture congestion. So what's it saying to those squad players if the manager doesn't believe or trust in them that they can adapt their tactics to try and overcome these problems. If we're talking about Mourinho in particular, does he really care what the other squad members think? Because if, if he believes it, he's trying to use it as a, a deflection method. But we, no one's falling for it, Steve. Clearly, there's sarcasm in your voice there. Uh, you, you've seen through, Jose. You really have seen through what he's saying. That you, I don't think you genuinely believe what he's saying, how tough the situation that is in. Two players. Two players he's missing. That's not easy for any manager. Two good with. players. But uh, I, if you look at Mourinho at Tottenham, I, there's so much going to change there. That I don't think he truly is that worried about what other people or people that have to come into the team because of these injuries make of it. He's just saying what he wants to say. But is there not a slight contradiction then that the man- managers at the very, very top level uh, are paid increasingly well because of their either motivational abilities, their, their, their tactical innovations... Yet then you also get the situation, and let's not just pick on Jose because there are, there, there are others who have come up with excuses of varying degrees through, through the course of the season, who effectively are employed because of their brilliance, yet when their brilliance is most required, what you hear from them are the reasons that they're not winning, rather than a demonstration of their ability to find a different way to win. So do you feel if 
Sadio Mane, Mo Salah were missing from Liverpool's team, would Jurgen Klopp be using the same kind of rhetoric as Jose Mourinho? You, you don't feel he would? Would he spin it differently or just not spin it at all? No, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not saying he would or he wouldn't. And you would expect to hear, under those circumstances, Jurgen Klopp pointing out that he's missing two of the crucial elements of what makes Liverpool play the way that they do. Mm-hmm. But what you'd like to see from Jurgen Klopp is to either promote other players to try and see if they are able to fulfil those responsibilities or conjure up a different way of playing using different squad players with different abilities to see if they can also win games that way. Why, why do we just... It's, it's that thing about if you're not part of the solution, you're part of the problem. Why are we not seeing solutions? Why are we hearing about problems? Well, I suppose with, with the coaches, what they say to the press and the media is one thing. What they're saying in the dressing room to the players is, I feel, would be very, very different. Um, but the problem is when you have teams with star players like Son and Kane or, or say it was Mane and, and Salah missing, they are so, so important and so such great big individuals that it's always going to be the, the first topic of conversation for any coach is how are you feeling about these two players or one player missing? So that's something that you have to address as a coach and you're going to say, well, clearly we're a, we're a worse team without them. That is obvious. But what you're saying back in the dressing room, the work you're doing day in and day out on the training field with those other players that have to fill the void, I'm sure it's, very, it's not as if you're basically writing off those players. Mourinho, I don't know with Mourinho whether it is the same because Klopp has been working for, for a lot longer than Mourinho at that club. So the players will probably have a lot more faith probably in, in Jurgen Klopp than... I get a feeling the Tottenham players, I'm not sure when I've seen them play whether they really feel wanted or not. Look at the Danny Rose situation. It's, it's an odd situation at Tottenham at the moment. It seems to be... Maybe Mourinho, not against the players, but it seems to be a, a, a battle of wits here about who's going to actually win out in the long run. And you get, I always feel that the players will ultimately win out and a coach will, will lose his job come the end of it. But it's, it's maybe because Klopp has been there longer, the players will have more faith in him. With Mourinho, I think there's, there's such an uncertainty at Tottenham that this and comments that he's made to the press about players missing and then maybe saying we haven't got the, um, the replacements to come in. It does erode confidence the, the squad will how they will feel about Mourinho as well but again is he is he doing it for that he don't, surely he doesn't say anything by accident he thinks long and hard before he comes out with anything so he must know the effect it's going to have and what he's saying in the dressing room would be very interesting as well not just what he's saying to the press students of the football manager PC game which I'm sure many will enjoy even now I haven't played it for two or three years so I'm not entirely sure if this is still there but if there's a key player in your team that gets injured you then have to face one of the media questions and essentially it is we're fine without him we'll be terrible without him he's a great loss uh, we'll be able to uh, cope but he is a great loss in other words you're throwing him under the bus you're saying that the replacements are going to be fine or you're trying to be sensible and couch yourself somewhere in the middle mm-hmm. so clearly there are if you are just a strip it down to its bare bones. If you're in Jose Mourinho's position, you can go one of three ways. He has decided to go, we're ruined without those two players. Poor me. But two things are happening there. First of all, he is setting up an excuse prior to any underachievement from Spurs so that he can refer back to it. I told you all along it was going to be difficult. So he is insulating himself. But also, is he not, you said that he says something different to the players. Well, he might do. I think he might do. Jürgen, so, Jürgen Klopp, I'm guaranteed that he will be saying given, something Given different. that you are assuming that there is a possibility change that he might say something different to the players, mm-hmm. it is crazy to think that they don't at least hear or react in some way emotionally to what they hear in the press as well because they have access to it and they have much more access to it than they might have done previously. They might not have necessarily um, proactively gone and got papers and read stories about themselves, but because of all the quotes being on social media somewhere where they spend a lot more time than players used to reading newspapers, one assumes, you're in a position where you will find out what that is. Sir Alex Ferguson used to use the media to send messages to his players, so there is a precedent for it pre-social media. I appreciate that. But emotionally, for those players, and we talked about the emotional preparation, the mindset ahead of what will be for Spurs over the course of the next few weeks, big games. Surely that has an effect, either an effect that he is hoping to achieve, getting them to galvanise and to try and prove him wrong, or for them to feel a little bit browbeaten and think, well, this guy doesn't trust us, doesn't think that we're any good, and therefore the relationship sours rather than improves. Well, that's why with Mourinho saying it, he's got so much experience, he wouldn't say it, Unless, well, does he truly believe that? Very probably yes. Does he care what the play, whether the play, of course the players are going to hear all this and will feel, hang on a minute, you're just saying we're basically second rate and we can't get anywhere if I'm in the team rather than Harry Kane's in the team. 
But again, if he says it, there's a, a reason why he's saying, I think you're right. Is to, if things go wrong, there I told you things are going to go wrong. We're missing two of our very best players. So there is an element of that as well. But I just think he's laying down a mark as if to say, I'm the important one here. And what Protecting I think... Protecting me matters. Protects, yeah. And in the long run for Tottenham, I'm going to be around longer than you are. That, that's what it feels like to me, as if there's a, a battle going on between him stepping into the club in, in mid-season, which I don't think he's ever done before, has he? He's not come into a club halfway through a season. So again, it's a different situation. For, and I think he's always... This is why I think he's preempting this. If, if it falls flat in the Champions League, they don't finish in the top four. And it is, it is a good reason. If you're missing Kane and Son, it, it's, a, it's reasonable to say that Tottenham aren't as strong. But if you're coming out and, and making statements like that, he must know what he's doing and he must know the effect that it has on the dressing room. Or he's saying it, then going back to the dressing room and saying, by the way, lads, I'm saying that to the media because it is true to a degree, but I've got enormous faith in you. But then why would you say it in the first place if that is the case? Why would you say two very different things to the players and to the, to the media? And if he has a choice of one of those three things that I rather crudely suggested um, are in the game, football manager is that he's not going to choose the diplomatic one. That's just that just doesn't seem to be the way that he he responds to things because he doesn't see any mileage in ploughing a, a central course. He wants to, he wants to do something or other mm. to uh, to affect a marginal game of some sort. But, but in your experience, what would a majority of footballers respond better to? in terms of their preparation minds and mindset. And is for it, a specific game as well, not yeah. just for a course of the season, specific it, game. Is it hearing a manager talk them up, mm -hmm. big them up as being able to, to fill a void? Yeah. Is that going to make them walk taller and perform better? Or is that negativity going to make you doubt yourself? But you don't have to tell a dressing room. If we were at Sheffield Wednesday, say, and we lost, or Everton, we lost Duncan Ferguson, we lost Paolo Di Canio, you don't have to tell the dressing room that we are not a stronger team. Even though the person coming into the team, we have a lot of faith in, but we know they're not playing because there's a better player in the team. So as a, as a squad, as a bunch of players, you know how the land lies. I, I just can't remember, I, coaches were probably, well, they weren't kind of front and centre like Mourinho, because everything he says is is kind of really listened to and analysed. So again, that's the world that we live in. So maybe it was slightly different back then. But no, if it was Joe Royal, say, or, or Danny Wilson, he'd have thrown himself behind the replacement coming in and given them probably more belief than he probably had in them to try and get that little bit extra that's out. That's your middle ground. That's your Absolutely, diplomatic yes. response to yes. try and make sure that you don't do one of the other two, which could have a potential negative outweighing the positive. Mm. And as a coach, that, that is your job. If someone drops out of the team through injury or loss of form, can you, can you bring somebody in, coach them well enough to get a response from them and for the team to, to still kind of rumble forwards as well. So the, the onus, again, so what you're basically doing as a coach is you're passing it all on and saying, I'm a brilliant coach. I've lost my star player. I've only got this lot to turn to. What do you expect? Well, I expect you to work very hard with who's, who you've got to work with. Which, if you're a brilliant coach, you'd be able to make them better. Exactly. So again, why, why are you saying these things? and make it, it, it is true. It is true if you, you lose two very good players. That's obvious to it. You don't even have to say that. It's obvious to everybody. But it'd be very interesting to fly on the wall in that dressing room for the players that are now coming into the team what is he is he just saying well he's just writing out the team sheet and saying there go or is he or does he not care i don't know this is why i think the situation at tottenham is so unusual and we have to look at it maybe in isolation if you compared it to it would be a very different situation at a more where coaches that are more has been more established at a club like Klopp or anybody else pretty much they they know their players a lot better as well whereas Mourinho going in there the situation seems a little bit fraught. I'm not sure the players are convinced by him and he certainly doesn't look convinced and actually if you see some of Tottenham's performances you can understand why he's thinking what the defensively what the hell is going on here. But we can accept that there are some coaches who see the bigger picture the longer game as it were and and believe that they owe their employers the club that development for the future but there are also coaches that are very short-termism in very much how is this going to work during the period of my contract in fact I might not even be thinking about the entire length of my contract but say you're a, a young up-and-coming striker at a north london club let's call him roy budgerigar and okay we'll go with that then all yeah. of the the first choice strikers are all are all injured you've been <laughs> chomping at the bit waiting for your opportunity and still 
your manager won't turn to you. What does that do for a young player who is desperate for their opportunity? It, it is absolutely, it is worse for Roy Budgerigar. That is, that is amazing what you've done there. It's, it's, I don't situation. know who you could mean, but that's extraordinary. Young players, absolutely. But with, with Mourinho, all the talk of Mourinho going into a club, he's a winner. He gets the team over the line. He gets the job done. Tottenham have played beautiful football, but not really got anywhere. Now, he's, he's, uh, when he was at Chelsea or the clubs that he's been successful at, it's not pandering to the players, but did he just expect the players to step up and get on with it? Because to be winners, you need that mindset. You need to be able to go out and perform without me telling you how great you are or working with you every minute of the day. With young players, they do need to be kind of talked to and worked every day because they need to learn how to play the game because they're younger. But maybe 25, 26, 27-year-olds, international players, he's probably thinking, well, I don't need to go in there and give you a hug and tell you how great you are. Your job as a professional is to go out there and get the job done for me. So again, is that maybe how Mourinho sets the bar? That, that's what he expects from his players. He doesn't think I need to do anything different to get that from players. Whether you're first choice or not, you come into my team, I expect you to, to do anything that needs to be done to win the game. Because surely that mindset, that winning mentality needs to run through an entire squad of 20 plus players. But do you, you sign players with that mentality or do you? Does, has Mourinho over the years produced notoriously young players don't really feature on his radar an awful lot do they he hasn't really promoted a lot of young players has he through the clubs that he's been at he's always gone with more established senior so maybe he buys in players with that mentality rather than feeling I've got a I haven't got the time I need to win things whether it is for the club or is it for his own ego or his own legacy I need to win things now so to make that happen I sign senior players with that mentality I haven't got the time to work with people and build them to be those players uh, I promised it wouldn't be all about Jose Mourinho so we will park Jose Yep. there and um, one of the other points that the person who came up with this, this idea made I can't remember who it was, it was somebody really intelligent toasted and buttered um, <laughs> and uh, that was Steve if you can once again try and tap into the genius that produced this um, the Aston Villa situation who have just lost at Southampton by two goals to nil and they have a cup final next week a rare appearance at Wembley for them it is uh, for their opponents not like that but for Aston Villa it certainly is you could uh, tell that from the pitch invasion that Chinch was famously nakedly a part of in the semi-final second leg against Leicester but there is um, I wasn't naked by the way you were you were just for the purposes of the narrative you were I was nakedly part of but I wasn't naked <laughs> I wasn't part of naked Naked. Um, history is told by the victors Chinch and we've heard from Aston Villa that you were naked yes. okay. um, so what is it about Villa's performance at Southampton tying it into what happens next week on Sunday in the Carabao Cup final against Manchester City that allows them potentially to have a week a weekend off a performance so lacking Dean Smith is someone that we collectively really admire yeah. and especially what he's achieved since in the 12 month, in the last 12 months really with Aston Villa. They were well outside the playoff places and had this sudden surge, got into the playoffs, promotion to the Premier League, made a decent fist of things early on. Yep, they've struggled a bit of late. But I'm really fascinated as to where the responsibility lies in terms of that Villa performance against Southampton the week before the League Cup final, which clearly will be a career highlight for a lot of mm -hmm. the Villa players and not something that they will necessarily believe that they are going to get on a regular basis. But they are in a relegation fight towards the bottom of the Premier League. They were playing a team that has struggled at home all season. In fact, going into that game, had the worst record in the Premier League. Yet they spectacularly failed to turn up to the point where afterwards, Dean Smith, a coach who we have praised in the past for his attention to detail and his preparation, is suggesting that some of those players have played so badly mm -hmm. that they've played themselves out of a place in the cup final team. So you would interpret that to say they were protecting themselves so much from being injured the week before a cup final that they're now not going to play on the basis of their performance. And what is that? I, and whose I, responsibility? Is that on the players well, or is that on Dean I Smith? I guarantee you Dean Smith will have done as much as he can possibly do to prepare those players for the Southampton game. The book stops with the players. If they go out, he's not telling him to go out and underperform because we've got a cup fight. He understands that staying in the Premier League is more important than winning the Carabao Cup final. But he can bang on about this. He can work all week with the players physically and mentally to get them prepared for the Southampton game. 
try and put that cup final out of your mind. They're human beings. That isn't going to happen. And also, you look at where Villa are. If they were, I think City would think very differently because they've been in so many cup finals. It, the mindset for, for the City players going into that would be very different than the Villa players. So I can understand why the Villa players have got their mind on that cup final and how they put that performance in against Southampton. They shouldn't have done. And this is why Dean, he's come out, and this is a really strong statement for a really supportive coach. Throughout this season, he's defended his players an awful lot. But from the team that played against Tottenham and lost, he made one change for the Southampton game, brought Nakamba into the team. So it's the same bunch of players. It's not as if he's made five or six changes and rested players. You know, Grealish played. All, all the, the Mings was back in the team as well. So he, he's, he's prepared them clearly for a big game against Southampton and they've let him down. That's why he's come out. And those players, I'm sure, after the game, the following day, will be sat in that dressing room thinking, or hopefully will be thinking, Dean Smith is absolutely right. And whatever team he picks for that cup final, we can have no complaints because we have played our way out. He's, he's got a problem now picking a team because he's not really sure of a lot of those players that he was pretty sure of during the course of this season. So he, will have not, he, he couldn't have done any more to prepare them. That's why I said the players have to understand when they step over the white line, they've got to do the job individually and collectively. A coach still is, no matter who you are, you still only can do so much and the book stops with the players. And that, that performance was absolutely abject. I can understand it with a mind on a cup final, but it's not the, the, the responsibility for that performance. Dean will take it on and say, well, I picked that team but he would have not picked that team to play like that. The players played like that. Uh, we, we, we're talking about preparation and mindset. The, the preparation can be done physically by the players. It can be done tactically by the coaching staff. And then the coaching staff will take those players who are prepared physically through the tactical plan for the match. We're and then the whistle blows and it's up to them. And it's up to them. But there is a sense at this stage of the season, with Villa, it's a cup final. With Spurs, we've talked about what they're, what they're trying to do. And for Villa's opponents, Manchester City have a game against Real Madrid, which is absolutely crucial to them for all manner of reasons. Um, how different is it at the stage of a season where games matter more? And how significant is it when you are essentially playing for a trophy or playing in a knockout game where slip-ups, mistakes could cost you your future in that competition and how much more attention to detail, how much more is there than usual, do you think? Well, there's going to be more pressure on City with the possible exclusion from future Champions League campaigns. This Real Madrid game and tie is, is hugely important. So that is a real test for City players who pretty much passed every test that they've, they've been faced with, winning Premier Leagues, winning domestic cups. But not playing very well in two-legged knockout ties in the Champions and that's But again, with the possibility of not being in the competition for the next couple of seasons, that makes this, again, it ramps up the pressure and people will be looking at City to say, well, can they respond and can, can they deal with this? Because they, they face pretty much, okay, they haven't been successful <clears throat> in the Champions League, but they're kind of, this, this was their season when maybe they were hoping that was, they kept a bit more experience and again, the mindset of, of maybe how to be successful in that competition with winning the league, winning domestic cups, they won't be even thinking about Premier League games and, and the Carabao Cup final because that, that's just second nature to them. They're so used to that. They won't feel the pressure. That's like every other game because they've played so many games like that. But the Real Madrid game and tie is unusual and the pressure has been ramped up. So Guardiola, we know, you know how intense he is. But ultimately, again, it's down to the players and how they actually go out and play. He can, again, only do so much. How they deal with this slightly different situation will be interesting but they certainly got the ability and the experience within that team to cope with it but again you're talking about players at the peak of their powers so they, they should be able to to cope pretty well but it will be something they've not experienced before and it's because of that possible future exclusion the other element then that ties into this topic of conversation and, and as Hugh has just <laughs> what are you asking Siri uh, for? Siri has just uh, repeated everything I've just said which is actually written down makes more sense than when I actually <laughs> said it it's tremendous is this what you do? I rec Siri, record my thoughts. No, it isn't. No, it isn't. And then send them to Jose Mourinho. No, 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 it isn't. No, no. I, I've never... I, I didn't even know I had Siri on my phone. What is Siri? So when you talk Sorry. about... When you talk about Siri. the preparation you do for a, a commentary, actually what it is, is it's just you dictating your innermost thoughts on the game Steven, into your phone Steven, and then reading them off the screen. You're just making a fool of yourself now. You really are. What were we talking <laughs> about? Oh, yeah, Pep Guardiola and his, his how he 
gets his players to rise to the challenge. Yes, we were, Chinch. And we'll, we'll come to Steve's point in just a moment, but I want to finish off on Pep because there is this thing, and there's a piece in The Athletic uh, this week. Uh, you may well have read it if you like your sports news behind a paywall, and it's not the New York Times, um, from uh, Rafa Honigstein and Sam Lee talking about the fact that this overthinking tag has been put upon Pep, particularly from his time at Bayern Munich, where they got to three semifinals in the Champions League in a row and failed. And as it turns out, and if you read uh, Marty Perrineau's book or if you read this article and you know and you remember back there are three different reasons as to why that happened uh, but yet the narrative was is that each time it was Pep overthinking it I think the only time that he second guessed himself was in the second leg against Real Madrid in that first semi-final that he faced and he decided to kind of abandon his principles and play a little bit more direct and they were hit on the counter-attack and thrashed at home so there is perhaps a narrative about overthinking which isn't necessarily true but there is a general kind of understanding particularly in his three years of Manchester City there's a general understanding that Manchester City don't play particularly well in those two-legged knockout mm-hmm. ties in the latter stages of the Champions League and if you look about look back at the three years that that's happened to City under Guardiola it was Monaco where it was basically bat s crazy uh, in both legs to a certain degree the second one was Liverpool and it was a 10-minute spell basically in the 20-minute spell in the first half where they went 3-0 down after the bus attack. And then the, the last year, it was against Spurs, where, again, they kind of went... They, they re- reacted to adversity in a way that exas- exacerbated that adversity. They panicked, and they conceded those two goals to Spurs early on in the second leg, which essentially set the tone for another crazy game. But this is, this is the issue with Pep Guardiola and Manchester City and to talk about in our subject today about how you react and how your preparation and your mindset is suitable for those moments where you might face adversity. Mm-hmm. City have tended to, because they don't face it very often, panic, gone to panic mode straight away. And that's often meant that they've conceded not just one, the panic that ensues means that they can see two and at Liverpool three so that but is how, that is that is that a Guardiola that? tactical problem so exactly. or is that a is players it, doing stuff that they it, shouldn't be doing problem is it a preparation from Pep Guardiola again the narrative is is that he prepares them in a slightly different way he overthinks it he comes to a conclusion which is detrimental to his team so that's one thing and if you dispel that narrative and say that it's not necessarily true then what is it is it because he prepares them tactically for a specific game and that tactical preparation goes out the window because Mm -hmm. of an early goal or because of some other reason or is it because emotionally they do not know how to react to these issues and therefore they are not mentally prepared correctly enough because there is a theme developing in those three games which suggests that they don't react particularly well to a moment of adversity so is that as you said about Aston Villa is that the player's problem that once the whistle goes or is that a part of the coaching preparation to say to you listen it might not go so well this might happen this might happen be sensible react stay calm you'll have opportunities you may well be able to turn the game around well surely you have to learn from experience coaches have to learn from experience players have to learn from experience they want the games you've just talked about there and what happened and the, the, the similarities in those games where maybe there was a tactical plan didn't quite work out concede the goal when they or two when they didn't expect to do and all hell broke loose that that can't be Guardiola's plan that ultimately again is down to the players in a situation that they've not been used to over the years. But now they've been through that for, for, for three seasons or more. You'd feel now, surely experience would, would mean they're in a better place now that that wouldn't happen again. But again, it, it does all stem from the coach. But once the players go out and if they do get... Emo- That's the one thing you can't afford to do probably the latter stage of the Champions League is get emotional and get carried away. You have to stick to the plan and be maybe at times more conservative than you would be in other games. But I, I do feel... that he's not willing to do. Essentially, no. the, the, one, the one narrative that is a through line for all this is that he's determined... Proactive. To, ...to stick to his plan, which is to attack. And if he needs a 10-minute, 20-minute period where you consolidate, that's not what happens. They tend to attack in those moments of adversity. But also, there, there will be, if, if you say this, and this is your mantra, but the players will remember... Yes, you're saying this and we understand it. We want to follow that. But when we did that last time, it went wrong and it went wrong and it went wrong. So the players, again, have got to be convinced. And how, how do you convince players that it can work is by making it work. So maybe, again, the intensity or the desire of Guardiola to play a certain way, to be so proactive, is actually causing his own players. So he's shooting himself in the foot because the players don't know what they should do. But again, is that just lack of experience in that competition? Is it, again... 
um, they're, they're following Guardiola's plan and saying, well, you're telling us to do this, to step up the pitch. We keep getting caught out. But so at what point does does the coaching kick in or do the players' brains say, hold on a minute, this, this doesn't make any sense. We would do, we're just repeating the mistakes we've made before. And for a manager who's all about control and a team that is yeah. used to controlling a game, the chaos, mm. by comparison, looks massively chaotic. Mm. And there are moments where it happens over a five or ten minute period. That's it, tie out. And, and the players never think, do you know what? We need some mutiny here. The, the, the manager, the head coach, has completely lost his marbles. We, what we've been doing every week for the last f- several months has worked perfectly. Why are we suddenly going to do something different tonight for the biggest game of the season? Well, well, I think for they City, not... the problem is that they're doing the same thing and forgetting about the circumstances and indeed the opponents. Mm. That might be the bigger issue. Yes, they're, possibly. They're, but... they're playing against a good team and 80% of the time they don't. Mm. But possibly, do they not think, hang on, we just need to revert to type here? I mean, what, everything the manager said makes sense to a point apart from the fact that we might get this horribly wrong and when you get it horribly wrong in the latter stage of the Champions League with the quality opposition that you're up against they're going to punish you so that again you probably don't see it playing half the Premier League you can it's never that chaotic anyway because the, it's they control games so you, you never see games like they've, they've had in the Champions League in the Premier League because the opposition isn't of a standard but also it's the way that City again they seem to lose they're, 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 the games just seems to go completely to pot. They go, they go from first to fifth gear yeah. with nothing in between mm. and often there's about 85 minutes of the game left and that's, and that, and that's the issue. But you, you remember the, the semi-final of the 2014 World Cup, the oft-mentioned Brazil game where they lost 7-1 to Germany. That, that game, again, was, was a team who just completely emotionally collapsed because of the significance of the occasion. Now, I appreciate for, for Manchester City in the quarterfinals of the Champions League, it's not quite the same level of importance, but it is a, a, a kind of a, a sister reaction because you have a situation where it clearly matters to Manchester City. The last two times it was in the quarterfinals against another Premier League team who they are capable of beating and have done prior to that, uh, that game during that season. So you can understand perhaps based on that Brazil example which is quite an extreme one but you can understand a grade of that happening two or three steps below where essentially this matters so much and then a flip a switch flips and they are unable to drag it back emotionally to somewhere where they're in a little bit of a stasis and calm that that brazil germany game was even as i was watching it it was absolutely extraordinary for a team basically clearly been maybe told to play a certain way um, felt obliged to play a certain way and the way that Germany again but they've been through this before they probably against played against arguably better teams than them but they get the job done so it was kind of well we're all going to go flying forward conceded one let's all go flying forward it's two it's three it's four what do you do it it was kind of well, when does the coach say hold on a minute for, for 15 minutes just don't let them score but it, it never stopped that's mindset the mindset absolutely was it is the it mindset to be right but then the, the players must know hang on a minute we're doing this and we're conceding we're doing this and we're conceding at what point does do, do the players not say this is this is something we've got to stop or the coach just says at 2-0 this has to stop what on earth are you doing unless that's what he feels is the best route to, to winning the game but before you know it you're 5-0 down if we're talking World Cup semi-finals, Champions League quarter-finals, something that they have in common is coming at attritional points of campaigns where games are coming around very, very quickly every three or four days. And clearly mental and physical fatigue is a factor in those situations. And we've seen, we have several spells of a football season in which fixture congestion is something that comes up, which ties in with this point of discussion as well, doesn't it? Let's think about over Christmas and New Year. I think I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, Leicester playing 17 games between the 1st of December and the 1st of February. That's one every three and a half days. Then we've got this, the return of European football, Europa League, Champions League, how quickly the games can potentially come around then. How does that message that you hear from the top about fixture congestion and its impact reflect on players in terms of mindset and preparation because former pros you see them in a tv studio you hear them on the radio all they ever talk about in reaction to this is well i'd prefer to be playing games than training yet during their careers they've clearly had to deal with a, a manager a head coach who perhaps feels he knows better because they're either complaining about the fixture congestion and the impact it's having on, on their players, or they are making wholesale changes for domestic cup competitions in order to give their better players a rest. So how does that message filter the players in terms of their mindset and preparation? I suppose, again, if it depends on what kind of game plan you have. If it's really intense 
and your training will reflect that. Because remember, Everton, we had a certain way of playing and our training was of, of high quality and that they, obviously we trained to play. So you, you do work very hard on training days as well. So if you're playing that many games as Leicester did, there, there comes a point when the coach surely has to soften his approach with his regular 11 going into cup competition. He will make the change, of course, as well, just to give simply give the players a rest. But surely there comes a point where you can't train at full throttle. You don't need to train at full throttle because surely your message in the previous eight months should have got through to, to your players. They should should know tactically how we're going to approach this. They may tweak it a little bit depending on the opposition and, and who's injured or, or out of form for, for the team that you're in. But, but there has to be that easing off not necessarily days off, but just easing off of mental and physical because, and then again, just the day before the game, you pick it up again. There has to be kind of the, the peaks and troughs for players. You can't keep them at that height. You just burn them out. There's just no way you can do that. So it then becomes a question of the, the coaches working as hard on the players, how they feel mentally as much as physically. You know that they're going to be tired from playing that many games and it's tiring mentally to constantly think about the game. If you're playing 17 games in that space of time, it's, it does, it tires you out. Thinking tires you out. And again, the, the players are asked to, to think a lot more than they've ever done before. So there has to be an easing off, but not that you completely forget what you've been told. It's kind of the, the peaks and troughs. I think that's the way that the, certainly the coaches that like to play an intense game surely have to approach things now. And again, it's for the players to be able to, to raise their game and then also ease off, but then know they've got to raise it again later on. That comes again with experience through going through season after season with the same, but coaches change all the time as well. And that becomes a problem. <clears throat> coaches have different ways of, of, of approaching how they play and, and how they, whether you, like at Bielsa, it's at Leeds yeah. trains every day. Players don't get any days off. No matter when it is in the season, you train constantly. So again, does that work? Does it not? Come the end of the season, you'll actually find out. But there has to be physically, mentally an easing off just to give the players a, a break. But then we come back to that sort of inadvertent contradiction of head coaches that I was talking about earlier because they give that impression where if only I had more time on the training ground, I would be able to implement all of these brilliant tactical ideas. Mm -hmm. Yet when they are in a situation where needs must, they don't seem willing to do that. What would... Brendan Rodgers have been doing on the training ground if he had had more time? Would we see Leicester players getting better if they weren't having to play every three and a half days? Or are they simply talking about a perfect situation which they know is never going to materialise so they'll never have to make, make good on that promise? Well, that's why coaches always talk about having a pre-season with their players because it's not just physically and mentally ramping them up. It's actually getting your ideas across under very little pressure and you have maybe two months to do that so that's where a coach will kind of set his standards and set his philosophy and then during the course of the season yeah you have to keep working on it and you can work hard on it maybe August September October but there comes a point because physically the way coaches want to play and the way teams are asked to play it is so physically demanding that there has to be an easing off or you hope that the players that the penny has dropped then they understand what is needed and then the older they are as well the more experienced they are they they will adapt their lives as well they will understand that they need to rest at the right but you can't keep pushing yourself if you need to rest you understand that young players don't they need direction all the time so pre-season is is vitally important that's why we talk about Mourinho coming in in mid-season that is not ideal because again you haven't worked with this group of players before. They've been playing under a different coach. Is it how, how can you get your message across while you're playing games? And yes, you can do work on the training ground. Of course you do, but you don't want to kind of wear your players out for the games. that you The games are the important thing. So that's why Marino always says, I want to start afresh so I can get that first two months in. There's a lot of them work under the belt and then we can carry on from there. Coming in mid-season is, I think, very tricky because, again, you're trying to influence the players while you're playing games. That isn't, that isn't easy to do. And whilst I agree with you, we have got a couple of examples of coaches, Mikel Arteta and Carlo Ancelotti, who have come in at very similar points in the season to Mourinho and have seemingly managed to make those players better. So I wonder whether in terms of a, a, a coach's mindset, sometimes it's not about what the coach wants, but what can they achieve with the players they've got at their disposal. And that's about your ability to adapt, isn't it? That's about the ability to... And for the players to adapt to the yeah. new coach as well, to throw themselves into the, the, the... It might not be... It might be a couple of hours a day, but if you throw yourself fully into that, it's amazing the difference that any, any coach can make and how suddenly a player can look so different from one coach to another. But over time, you'd expect a coach to implement their ideas, but mm -hmm. I suppose the very best 
have that flip side where they deal with the situation they are presented at that time and see the bigger picture again it's mm-hmm. that difference between you know the long term and the short term yeah. games it is now time for Nevermind Jack and Ori what a soccer story this is when Andy Hinchcliffe seated to my right tells us a tale from his playing days with all adult behaviour and libel-worthy details removed well the, uh, people out there across the wider world will pro- I don't know whether they know how terrible terrible the weather has been in the UK we have had rain we have had wind we have had floods. We've had Storm Kira and Storm Dennis. The farmland around Chinfork is, is under several feet of water. It, it's appalling. The geese have been uh, seeking refuge on my land. I say land, it's my back garden. And lots of geese, lots of poop. But anyway, there's been lots of rain. And this got me thinking about conditions, the worst conditions I'd ever played in. I think I mentioned the Cameroon game when I played for England. Have I mentioned that I played for England seven Very times? Very cold. It was... Very, very cold indeed. So let's play Cameroon when it's really cold because clearly it's not, going to be, it's not going to be great, really, is it coming to the UK in November and playing a friendly against England? It's just not going to work, is it? And, so. in, and in such favourable conditions for England on mm. that occasion, I mean, obviously you must have swept Cameroon aside quite comfortably. It was 2-0. We, we, we saw them off. But to be fair, th- their heart really wasn't in it. It, it was won before a ball was kicked. <laughs> their, their heart rate was probably at about 80. It was, it was. But th- that wasn't the worst. There was a game. It was, I've been looking up on the, uh, on the Tinternet. Uh, it was a game I played for, well, I say I played. I didn't really play. I was awful. Uh, in 1987, Swindon Town versus Manchester City. The 31st of October, 1987. Now... The pitch at Swindon was appalling anyway, but the the rain had been thundering down. And the more we played on this pitch, the clearer the worse it's going to get because raining during the game, lots of rain before the match. And I'm sure that the Swindon coaching staff had their young players run up and down on the pitch to make it even worse because City clearly were a, a silky footballing team and we didn't want a good surface to play. Like some sort of plough. Yes, they kind the of plough. It was, it, was, it was... And watch, if you go on YouTube, you can watch the game. But the interesting thing is... I. And I remember the game because the, the, the penalty areas got more and more muddy as people trampled on them, which is, is understandable. So as a player, you should probably appreciate that the penalty areas are getting a little bit sticky. So if you're going to play any passes across the back four or back to your goalkeeper, maybe don't do it because the mud tends to stop a football in its tracks. So in this game, for some reason, I thought about passing the ball back to my goalkeeper from 25 yards into the mud <laughs> it stuck in the mud Steve and Dave Bamber streaked onto it and lashed it home now we won the game 4-3 and the funny thing is watching the game back on YouTube all the goals are on there six of the seven goals are on there the commentator says and by the way Dave Bamber got uh, Swindon's second goal they don't even show <laughs> Because it must be so bad that either someone realises that I was destined for future greatness and thought, I can't have Hinchcliffe playing the ball back, sticking in the mud, and Dave Bamba scoring. So they didn't put it on the edit of the game. It just mentioned that... De- didn't even mention me. Just mentioned that Dave Bamba got Swindon's second goal. But why would you do it late in the game when the pitch is turning into a muddy, ploughed field? What does that say about my mindset? <laughs> Or your preparation. Or my preparation is that don't pass the ball back. There's a big muddy patch the ball might stick into. Oh, the ball's stuck in the muddy patch and they've scored. Brilliant. Well done. Has the goal been um, erased from a fuller highlights reel on account of Andy Hinchcliffe's desire for Google to have, what is it, the right to be forgotten? Have you, have oh, you really? appe- appealed to the court, U- European Court of Human Rights under a right to be forgotten? But these all your terrible defensive errors have been wiped from the What do you mean all my terrible internet? defensive errors? I oh, know that... that um, There's only three of them. That Graham Murty one is definitely... The Graham Murty's a bad one. The headed own goal against Nottingham Forest was, was just a tremendous finish. And this one, but again, <laughs> nowadays, wouldn't that be... You'd absolutely keep that in, wouldn't you? Because of all the goals that were scored, there were some good goals scored in the game considering the conditions. But that one, you'd absolutely leave in because it was just laughably bad. Do you know what? You, now you've reminded him about the Graham Murty one. That's suddenly going to mysteriously disappear from the internet in the next 24 hours. I need to, I need to get Kevin Pressman on the case because he was a master of get, getting rid of uh, videotape evidence. Do you, know, 
you know what though? It's not Regular ch- listeners will understand where, oh. <laughs> where that's from. It's not Chinch's preparation and mindset that was wrong there. It was camera one on the gantry's yeah. preparation that was... He clearly had to change the battery in his camera <laughs> at a point which has worked spectacularly in your favour. Le- maybe left back was restricted view and he couldn't quite, uh, couldn't quite but, get it on but film. But why would you... Why would you leave it out? Something as bad as that. I've got a feeling that it's the Granada television coverage, which is the Northwest. Um, so they're doing me a favour. To, to, to those who don't know, it's the Northwest Regional ITV service, the commercial uh, local news service. And I just wonder, I just wonder if they were particular fans of yours because you're a local boy and they tried to save your blushes. So on the the Swindon coverage it might be very very At different front and so doing slow motion <laughs> <laughs> they've, they've mysteriously got a camera behind the goal in the 1980s to show that one uh, thank you Chin. you'll be providing us the soccer story next week even though you are not here which is uh, through the magic of recorded podcastery am I okay keep your correspondence coming in the meantime to setpiecemenu at gmail.com thank you as I said earlier for all of your suggestions for our likeable footballer 11 uh, please subscribe share rate and review as we humbly ask you to continue to find room for us in your podcast schedule thank you to Stephen and Andy at you all for listening. Rory's back next week, as we will be with another set-piece menu for you to enjoy very soon indeed. Can we just take a moment, by the way, to appreciate the sheer brilliance of our, our comrade who is not here today, Rory, for managing to organise a trip to Istanbul to coincide with the most horrific weather that we've had in England in decades. How did he Dortmund pitch and Istanbul. How did he manage to pitch that one to Andy Das in the office in New York? Yeah, Andy, I'm thinking Istanbul back end of February. That would that we need to get that in the paper, don't we? Is there a big story brewing there? Yeah, there, there was the Istanbul derby, the uh, Fenerbahce Galatasaray. Yeah, they're going on all the time, though, aren't they? And I mean, he, he, he made it worse by tweeting a video of him travelling to the game via a ferry across the Bosphorus. Was he was he there for the game though, or was he basically yes, on holiday? Oh, he's been sent there. Well, no, he has. I mean, he's been to the game. We get to see any copy. Uh, He's not come straight (laughs) back, though. No, he's spending some time out there recovering. Yeah, well, I mean, the the jet lag is clearly something that is going to have to be dealt with. Maybe that's why he took the ferry across the Bosphorus, just to, you know, clear the sinuses. That's true. And by the time that you hear this, I'm sure uh, some sort of award-winning copy would have landed in your inboxes. But uh, as things stand, currently, there's just lots of pictures, pictures and grammary. Is he coming back, though? And also videos filmed in portrait mode rather than landscape, which we seriously need to speak to him about. Well, that's for the gram. For the they gram. Have, they, have to be, they have to be portrait for the gram. He's not cool enough gram. to worry about the gram, come on. Well, after what happened with his Neymar article, he's not going on Instagram ever again. But he is coming back, is he? Are you worried, Chinch? Yeah, because it's quite a long way away, isn't it, Istanbul? Will he, will he make it back safely? It's not, it's not that much further than the Algarve, to be honest with you. Is it not? Yeah, we're not worried about you coming back.